As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, Advent for me this year has a, has a, a greater significance. And it's um, in a really good way, weighing heavily on my heart. And I'm looking forward to this season. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. But let's begin here. Can anybody relate? Um, I just find manger scenes just really weird. You know, I, 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 you drive around, you see kind of in the yard, angels. And just really, here's what I mean by that. I, uh, I, you know, so there's Mary and she's looks perfectly calm and peaceful, which is remarkable given that she's just given birth to a baby, most likely without any epidural. Um, and then there's baby Jesus with his perfectly coiffed hair and his arms stretching out. Like he's about to belt out a song. And then there's Joseph, who is remarkably calm, given that he just saw his uh, wife-to-be give birth to God, right? Um, I, ju- I just do. I find, I find it really, because it, it, here's what it would have looked like in reality. If you've ever, husband, if we've ever been in a, in a, a delivery room, <laughs> it's chaos, it's loud, or at least... Mine was. It's very <laughs> loud. Um, Mary would have been anything but calm. She, there would have been blood and sweat. Um, Joseph, I imagine, would have been nothing but nothing further from just calm and collected. And imagine baby Jesus as well. If you ever seen a newborn, um. Sorry to deliver the bad news to you, but they're not the most attractive, beautiful-looking things in the world, uh, even your own. Um, you realize in our country, in our culture, um, we've sanitized Christmas. We've sanitized Christmas. We've literally taken all the messy parts right out of it. We've taken all the blood, the sweat, the tears, the agony, the pain, the confusion, the suffering. We've taken all the, oh my God, what now parts out of it. We've taken all the, this really hurts. And I just want to scream. Parts right out of Christmas. You know, the real parts. But in the process, we've removed all the power and all the hope right out of Christmas. Do you know why you and I enter into Christmas season, especially for those of us that grew up in church? And we enter into this season somewhat, you know, sentimental and somewhat sort of for those of us that are tired of the consumers and somewhat weary and just we enter into the season that way because literally our culture has removed Herod our culture has removed murder of innocent babies but in the process of removing murder and Herod and suffering and tragedy, we've removed essentially all the hope and all the joy out of Christmas. Is anybody with me this morning? See, the gospel writer Matthew takes the time to tell us about Herod and murder of innocent babies because unless you see with fresh eyes, Herod and murder of innocent babies, you and I missed the point of Christmas. And here's the point of Christmas. And if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here because here's the point of Christianity. You ready? The point of Christmas and Christianity is not an escape from the real world of tragedy and suffering and death and innocence, but it's about a God who willingly, out of love, chooses to enter into such a world of tragedy, suffering, and evil so that he could deal with suffering, evil, and tragedy, and sin once and for all and restore this world. That is the good news of Christmas. And so for some of us, 
The Christmas story actually needs to be looked on with fresh eyes because it will challenge this truncated view of Christianity that we grew up with, which is Jesus Christ came and died so that I can go to heaven. Christianity, and this is Christmas, is not about leaving this world to go to some place called heaven, but it's about the fact that heaven came to earth. Heaven came to earth in the form of Jesus. Christmas is about how heaven landed on earth. That's the good news. And, and by the way, that means that if God was willing to enter and step into the mess that was our world, good Lord, he is willing to step into the mess that is our lives. Is that good news to anybody? I wonder if I'm talking to anybody who's, you know, sort of made a mess of themselves this year. You don't have to raise your hand. Is that good news to anybody that if God was willing to enter into the world that was an utter mess and chaos, he is willing to enter into our world and bring order and bring peace and joy. See, here's the thing you need to know and I need to know. See, Christmas is about hope, joy, and peace. But hope, joy, and peace don't come from ignoring the realities of life or skirting how difficult things are, but is charging right through it, believing that there is something on the other side. Because a savior was born on this day. And he stared at evil, injustice, suffering, tragedy, death, and sin in the face. And he conquered it, good gracious, through his death and resurrection. That means there's infallible hope for the world. And yeah, for you and for me. Is that good news? So I want all of us to just sit back and get ready for a ride, a wild ride. Because it's going to, for some of us at least, challenge this notion of sentimental, consumer-driven, let's all be nice to each other. Our gospel text is from the book of Matthew, which was read, but I want to go over it again with you. Matthew chapter 2, the title of today's sermon is, Who is King? Who is King? That's why I see, I love that song. We're going to sing it like multiple times. You know which one. We worship him. We worship him. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the King? The Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew is quoting here, prophet a prophecy by the prophet name of Micah. Micah prophesied 700 years prior to the birth of the Savior this prophecy. Literally, this is what we find in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of time. Do you know why we come to Christmas and we kind of totally miss the point of Christmas? It's because we look at this event from the back end of history. We need to, as much as possible, to put ourselves in the context and shoes of the Jews at this time who've been waiting 2,000 years. You think you had to wait long for something? <laughs> By the way, next week's sermon is the waiting. So for anyone that's waiting you want to be here next year? Two th- next year, next week. Um, 2,000 years they've been waiting. They've been waiting 2,000 years. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy or word that was initially given to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. 
God appears to Abraham 2,000 years prior to this and says, this is what I'm going to do, Abraham. I'm going to send you somebody who will be the ruler, father of all the nations. And so the Jews have waited 2,000 years. But here's the thing. For 2,000 years, they've been under oppression of one country after another. When Jesus arrives, they are under the rule of who? The nation of Rome. The nation of Israel didn't even have their own government, militarily, politically, culturally. They're a nation without an identity. They're living constantly every day under injustice, restlessness, hopelessness. If there was ever a time when the nation of Israel desperately needed hope, this was it. But if there ever was a time when it was almost impossible to hope, this was it. Every rational person in Israel was going, God has forgotten about us. God has forgotten about us. And yet, here's the message of Christmas. You ready? God never forgets. God is always faithful to his promises. Is that good news to anybody? Good Lord, God never forgets. He is always faithful to his promises. I love this psalm, Psalm 105, verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. God never forgets. He is always faithful to his promises. He will always act in your life and in the world. Is this good news? I wonder if anybody walked in here this morning. I have a long year wondering, God, have you forgotten about me? You look at your life, your circumstances, your family, career. I don't know if there's anybody wondering, God, have you forgotten about me? I want you to hear this. And this is a subtext. God never forgets. He is always faithful to his promises. But in his time. God is always faithful to his promises, but in his time. That's the tension of Advent. That's the tension in you and the tension in me. Second Peter chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 8. With God, one day is as good as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. God is never late with his promises, as some understand lateness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is outside of time, is what he is saying. God is outside of time. That means that God can't be fitted into our time frame. That means there's no use praying, God, you have until Saturday to make this happen. Anybody pray that this week? Yeah, me. You have until Monday. Why? Because God says, here's how I look at time. You ready? I look at all the events in history at once. I am in the eternal right now. Let me give you a a metaphor or visual. It's like standing on Michigan Avenue, seeing the Christmas parade go by. That's our perspective. It's another thing to sit atop the Sears Tower. And yes, it's Sears Tower, not Willis Tower. (laughs) And if you're going, what deck is he talking about? That means you're not from Chicago. (laughs) I digress. It's like sitting atop the Sears Tower and being able to see the entire parade all at once. Do you know why you and I get frustrated? You and I see life via three by five, or to use our technology, you and I see life through our little iPhones and the picture graphic that's above in front of us. God paints on the canvas of the universe. So the next time you get frustrated, where are you going? He is always faithful, but in his time. By the way, I've found in my life that God often shows up when we least expect it. Think about the nation of Israel. It could not have been more unexpected for God to show up, and yet, here he was. 
Can you hold on to that tension during this season of Advent? God is always faithful. He will always keep his promises, but in his time. But in his time. As you look at the world and as you look at your life. Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Liar. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Gospel writer goes to great lengths to tell you and me about King Herod. Why? Maxview is actually planting seeds for you. Matthew, the gospel writer, through this text is asking you questions, asking me questions. He's asking three questions, among others. And those three questions actually are the three questions we'll be asking. Who is king? Where is your hope? Is he your king? Who is king? Where is your hope? And is he your king? Who is Herod? By the way, there is more written about Herod than most world leaders at this time. Check for yourself. You can Google it. Not now. Later. When you go home. (laughs) Stuff that I got is widely available. It's not something that I had to search long and hard for. Herod. Where does he come from and why is he significant to the story? Well, if you're Caesar Augustus and you rule the known world, how do you essentially rule a nation you've conquered that takes nine months just to get there. What you do is you find a local ruler and you say to that local ruler, you rule on our behalf. We keep you under our thumb, you keep them under your thumb. As long as you're loyal to us, you can do whatever you want to. And in Palestine, they find this guy named Herod. I want to take you quickly through his dimensions of his reign. There's four of them, real quick, okay? To get a context of who this guy was. First of all, Herod's military, military record. This is his claim to fame. Herod is a fierce, fierce warrior. He besieges Jerusalem in 37 BC with his army. And the historian Josephus, a Jewish, well-known Jewish historian in the first century, writes about what happened when Herod entered Jerusalem to essentially take it over. For the Jews of Herod's army were determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in alleys of Houses. This is how Herod takes over Jerusalem. He massacres people. Violence, brutality, and murder will characterize this reign. Herod's military reign. The thing that Herod actually is more known for is his building projects. Some of you know this. Herod's more known for his building projects than anything else. Herod decides one day that he wants to build a world-class port city along the coast of the Mediterranean. The problem is nobody's been able to build a port because it's all swampland. But Herod recognized that if he could build a port city in this stretch of the Mediterranean, he could make tons and tons of money. So what does he do? He does something that no one else has been able to do. He builds a world-class city, a port city along the coast, and he names it Caesarea, named after Caesar. He's the biggest butt, butt kisser, brown noser in the world. 
Another time in the middle of his reign, Herod decides that I want to build a temple, a palace, a king's palace. But I has to be halfway, exactly halfway between Jerusalem, where I rule and reign, and Edom, where I'm from. He wants to build a palace on top of a mountain. Problem is, it's all wilderness and desert land. There is no mountain to speak of. So what does Herod do? He builds a mountain in the middle of the desert. Puts a palace, and he calls it Herodium. Herodium. I don't know what it is with people with big egos wanting to name things after. Oh, easy. Okay, I'll just stop right there. I digress. He builds a palace on top of a man-made mountain in the middle of the desert. Herodium. You can go home and check it out. There's pictures. Herodium. And one time, Jesus is standing on Mount of Olives, and he is teaching. And in the distance, he sees Herod's palace built on top of a man-made mountain. And behind this man-made mountain is the Dead Sea. And Jesus in Matthew 17 says this, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mountain seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see what Jesus is saying? He's not just making, he's going, you think Herod's kingdom is impressive? You think what he is doing is impressive? If you belong to the kingdom that I'm bringing, and what I'm about to do, things that Herod's doing, that's child's play. <laughs> Is that good news? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the most well-known of Herod's projects was the Jerusalem temple, one of the wonders of the world. Herod decides that he wants to rebuild the retaining walls around this temple. How big is it? It takes 10,000 men, 10 years, to just rebuild the temple walls. How big is it? It could fit 24 football fields. To build the Temple Mount, he gets these 10 foot by 10 foot by 80 foot stones that weigh hundreds and hundreds of tons. And historians say, interestingly enough, that when the Temple Mount was being built, not a sound of chisel was heard in all of Jerusalem. Meaning, they had to cut it somewhere else and bring it to Jerusalem. Say, so, whoa, 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 whoa. How, how do you pay for all this? Let's get to Herod's rule. Herod not only rules with absolute authority politically, religiously, but he also controls the economic system, right? He controls all the economic system. So you, an average Jew, so an average Jew is living under enormous taxation and enormous economic burden. So Rome taxes you. Herod taxes you. Some historians say he taxes anywhere from 30% of all the grain and 50% of all the fish. So imagine what happens if you're a fisherman. You've been fishing out all night in the Sea of Galilee. You come ashore. And there's one of Herod's men called Teloni or tax collectors. And he says, 50% for Herod. Why well, take whatever I want to and the rest for you? Or you're a farmer and you've harvested, working hard entire year crop. One of Herod's men show up and he says, three bushels for Herod, two bushels for me, and one for you. You can't keep up, can you? So people are going into enormous debt and losing their family land. Why is Joseph, husband of Mary, a carpenter when everybody owned land at one time? At some point, you lose your family land. You have to do work elsewhere just to pay your debt. So Jesus comes and says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Pray this way. Give us our what? Daily bread. And forgive us our what? Debts as we forgive our debtors. So what happens if you resist Herod's rule? One time the Sanhedrin tried that, so he had them all executed. At the end of his life, historians write that Herod gathered all the prominent religious leaders in Jerusalem, put them in a huge stadium called the Hippodrome in the city of Jericho, had the soldiers lock all the doors, and he ordered them, when I die, slaughter every single person in this stadium so that I will be guaranteed that there will be mourning and weeping at my funeral. This is what's written about Herod by Josephus. Herod was cruel to all alike, one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. 
Lastly, Herod's personal life. He has 11 wives and 43 sons and kids. He's a busy guy. One time as he's about to go on a trip, he suspects that one of his wife wants him killed. So he pulls one of his assistants over and says, if I die on my trip, I want you to execute her. He didn't die on his trip. Came home. Had her executed anyway. Another time he suspects that one of his sons is plotting to overthrow him. So he calls the entire family around the family pool and has his son drowned. It was said about Herod by Caesar Augustus himself, better to be one of Herod's dogs than his children. This is the rule and reign of Herod. Can you put yourself in that context? So what is the world like? What is the world like under Herod's rule and reign? A world in which people are going bigger and bigger into debt, struggling just to put food on the table. A world in which Herod controls the economic system, the political system. A world in which the wealthier are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poorer. So what sets in at this time in the land of Palestine is an incredible sense of despair. Everybody's asking the question, is Herod always going to rule? People are getting away with murder. The poor and the weak are being trampled upon. You're struggling just to put food on the table. The question that everybody at this time is asking is, is Herod always going to be, is always going to rule? Will there ever be justice? Anybody ask that question? Will wrongs ever be made right? Anybody ask that question? Will there ever be peace? Is anybody asking that question? The question that you're asking are the questions that they're asking. And at some point, despair gives way to doubt. Does God care? Do you see? Church family, it's into this context that a group of wise men from the east show up. And their question is, where is born the king? For we have come to worship him. Do you see what Matthew is asking? He's planting seeds for you. He's asking, who is king? Who is in charge? Is Herod in charge? Matthew is saying, who you think is in charge is not who's really in charge. Who you think rules world history is not really who rules world history. The Christmas story. Is this good news to anybody? Somebody clapped. This king shows up. This is the Christmas story. This king shows up in Palestine. And what are his words? The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? It's not, I'm coming as a better king to usher in a better kingdom. I am an utterly different king. Hello, anybody. Ushering an utterly different kingdom. In his inaugural sermon, Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. If you're poor, is this coming good news? (laughs) He goes on, verse 19. He has sent for me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. It was incredible good news if you're poor, living under oppression, injustice. Here's a king who comes and says, I actually will stand up for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed, those in debt. Here's the king who gives away all of his wealth to make others rich. Here's the king who leverages his entire power and authority as the son of God for the sake of the weak and the poor. Here's the king who is establishing a kingdom not built on oppression, but on freedom. Not built on bondage, but setting the oppressed free. Not built on crushing people, but on loving people. And the best news of all, hey, how do you get into this kingdom? The poor, the poor, do they have a chance? The uneducated, do they have a chance? The sinners, he says, the good news is repent and believe the good news, not behave really good and hope for the best. 
Is this good news to anybody? How do you get into this kingdom? You enter it by faith through grace and not by works. That means, Jesus says, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the moral failures, anybody in here who's made an utter mess of their lives this year, you can get in because according to God, you want his grace. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. Is Christmas story good news? So how is it possible? Let me put the gospel in a nutshell for you. The gospel says that because Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, when we believe in Christ, the life that he lived and the death that he died becomes ours. And God looks at us as if we've done everything that Jesus has done. So in faith, we become adopted into the family of God, not by our good works, by the good works of Christ. And if you are in Christ right now, he looks at you as righteous, holy, blameless, perfect son, daughter. Is that good news? You see why the gospel was good news for everybody, politically, culturally, economically, and spiritually. Who is king? Matthew also presses in and says, where is your hope? Where is your hope? See, his contemporary, another guy, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, right around this time, prophesies another prophecy. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Church family, everybody look up. On whose shoulders do all the governments of the world rest? Jesus. Is that good news? On whose shoulders do all the governments of the world rest? Jesus. Isaiah is looking to a time when Jesus will finally establish his kingdom over all the governments, over all the rulers of the world. And Jesus says, what will my kingdom be like? Isaiah says, they will, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdoms, establishing and upholding his justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Oh, you have no idea how good of this news is. Jeffrey Schmaltz was a famous writer for the New York Times. He died in 1993 of AIDS, I think at the age of like 38 or 39. Three weeks after his death, they published his last column in the New York Times, which was about <clears throat> the 1992 presidential elections. And if you weren't born then, or you're not a fan of history, I will tell you that in 1992... The two people that were running for presidential office was George H.W. Bush and a God named Bill Clinton. In his last column, this is what he wrote. I'm just so embarrassed to admit, but before this last presidential election, I felt that if I could just get a Democrat into the White House, then I'd be saved. I looked at this candidate and I said, this is my white knight. His words. This will be my savior. I'm going to tell you something right now. Christmas says that hope arrived. Not in a politician. Not in a system. Not in a nation. Hope arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. The good news of Christmas is that I hope does not rest on an earthly kingdom ruled by an earthly king, but on a king whose kingdom will ever last forever. Can I get an amen? Is there anyone tempted to place your hope on a politician or a system or a nation? Is there anyone in despair because you've placed your hope in a politician or a system? Can I remind you of something? Herod's kingdom is a pile of rocks, pictures in the history book. Herod died. His son died. His son died. His son died. You see a pattern. So what was the main slogan of the early Jesus movement? Here it is, two words. He lives. 
And 2,000 years later, over 2 billion people this year will worship the kingdoms of Jesus Christ. Why? Because all the kingdoms of earth will die, but the kingdom of God keeps going and going and going and going and going. The good news of Christmas. Can I get an amen? You guys, where is your hope? Is there anybody tired working for justice? Is anybody tempted to give up on the world? May you be reminded today, the king has landed. The clock is ticking on all the Herods of the world. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Injustice will not have the last word. Oppression will not have the last word. Suffering and death and sin will not have the last word. God will have the last word. Is that good news? Oh, you guys, be reminded of that this entire year. Be reminded that every act of justice, every act of compassion, every act of mercy counts. Why? Because someday when each returns, all the little things we did in faith will be celebrated. Is anybody tempted to give up on yourself? Switching gears, is anybody tempted to give up on yourself? Is there anybody sitting here this morning tempted to give up on yourself? Here's the promise of God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I am certain that God, who began the good work in you, listen to the next words, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Good news? Every flaw, every sin, every weakness, every addiction, every bad habit one day will fall before the triumphant grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus. One day, you will triumph. I will triumph for every single one of them. And that truth, how to motivate us, amen, to pursue godliness, holiness in the power of the resurrection spirit that lives within us. But in the meantime, God says, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. So keep pressing. Keep pushing. Find God-exalting believers and do life with them. But don't you ever give up. If I didn't abandon you on the cross, what makes you think I'm going to abandon you now? Is anybody suffering? Because the promise of Christmas is real to you. You believe that God became a human being and suffered on the cross. You have resources to face suffering that other people don't. See, this side of heaven, we will never know why God allows suffering to still continue. But we know, to use Paul's words, with certainty, what the answer isn't. And the answer isn't that God doesn't care. And the answer isn't that God is indifferent. You go, how do you know? What kind of a God is this? Who chooses to personally enter in to the suffering, death, injustice, and evil in this world. Personally becomes embroiled in it so that someday he could end evil, injustice, suffering, sin, and death without ending us. He loves us that much. He cares that much. The last question that Matthew's asking is, but is he your king? Is he my king? You see, uh, you see what, what evoked the violence. You see what evoked the violence. You got to pay attention to the text. What was it that caused Herod to be disturbed and all drew some with him? The Magi don't come and say, we have great news. Unto this day, a personal Savior has been born. And if you go to him, he'll meet all your needs. Ah. He says, unto you this day born in what? A king. That causes Herod to be disturbed. And all drew some with him. The Magi come and say there's a king. If a king lands in a territory where there's another king claiming kingship, there's going to be war. When you and I became a Christian, when you and I became a Christian, the Bible says this. God starts renewing our hearts. Please pay attention. But there's a part of our hearts that wants to rebel against the claim as kingship. Paul calls that the flesh. There's a part of us that wants to rebel against the claim. Not the offer of salvation. Claim of his kingship on our lives. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And you see, here's the thing. The kingdom of self 
is a heavily guarded territory. The kingdom of self is a heavily guarded territory. The one principle of hell is I am my own. The one conviction that everybody in hell shares is I am my own. Nobody tells me what to do. And by the way, it's that one conviction, I am my own, that brings hell on earth. In your marriage, in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our world. Living from the conviction. I am my own. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm the master of my own fate. I decide for me. What is the message of Christmas? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive. your king. Stop treating him like a consultant. Stop treating him like a consultant. Some of us literally go, you know what? Here's what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian and then I'm going to invite Jesus to help me, you know, manage my kingdom. So me and Jesus side by side, he's going to be my co-pilot The problem is, if Jesus is your co-pilot, only to pilot when there's turbulence, you're going to crash and burn in clear skies. I'm going to ask you again, is he your king? Or do you have him come and help you manage? Be honest, manage your kingdom. Let earth receive her king. Jesus came not just saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I give you rest. He did say that. But he also said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do everything I tell you? If he's your king, new community, there are no conditions to our obedience. If there's conditions to our obedience, we come to him and go, I will obey you if... As long as my life goes well, my career goes as I want, my health is right, my relationship is okay. As long as, if that is your approach, you're still on the throne and he is your servant. Is he your king? Is he my king? The truth of the reality is, Jesus says, if you obey me, obey me unconditionally no matter what I send. Obey me unconditionally no matter what I say. Because if we obey him with conditions, I'm going to tell you right now, we're not obeying him at all. If we serve him with conditions, we're not serving him at all. To which you go, I don't want to serve him then. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to just uh, rule my kingdom And be responsible to hold it all together. I just got to ask, really? You want to be the one to hold it all together? You want to be the one to hold it all together? You want to be the one to be king? Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. In him all things hold. Say with me. Together. That means that as long as we are under his lordship and kingship, all things hold together. And to the degree that we are not under his lordship, we are not under his kingship, we are not under his mastery, our life will fall apart. I got to ask, anybody sitting here this morning as a failed king with a kingdom that's crumbling, is he your? I don't think he is, Peter. What do I do? Repent and believe. Here's where most of us need to start season of Advent. Most of us need to start season of Advent starting this morning. Doing an inventory of 2016 and asking this question honestly, rigorously. Is he my king? If he isn't, then we begin with confession. 
we begin with honest confession. We begin honestly saying, please, honestly saying, this is what I've done. God, I've dethroned you from the kingdom of my life. I've dethroned you from your rightful place. And I've tried to do it my way. I acknowledge God. I acknowledge that I've been master and king of my own life. And I confess and ask that by the power of your spirit and with your hope, surrender lordship to you and follow you. You think that's a simple prayer? Try saying that out loud and meaning it. It's the most difficult thing the human heart wants to do. Church, are you with me this morning? Because the rest of the season of Advent, all this talk about justice and what we're going to talk about, that's all meaningless unless he is your king. Let's pray. I want you to hear this. There's a world of difference between saying, I need to make some room in my life for Jesus and saying, you are my life. And we'll say that again. There is a world of difference between saying, I need to make Jesus a priority in my life and saying, you are priority. There is none else. You're my life. You're my hope. You're my joy. You're my peace. You're my identity. You're my worth. You're my satisfaction. He doesn't want to be the first amongst all the things you worship. He says, there is nothing else you worship. To any failed kings out there, and I include myself as one of them, with kingdoms of our own small, tiny little lives that have crumbled, the amazing news of Christmas is that grace awaits us. That's the amazing thing. No lectures, no condemnation, no, you need to pay. No, 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 no. He simply invites failed kings and failed kingdoms to approach his throne of grace with confidence, simply acknowledging, simply confessing, God, I've tried it my way. I'm done. God, I've run my own show, make my own decisions. I'm done. God, I've tried to do this with my ingenuity, intuition, and smarts. I'm done. Be my king. And the amazing thing is God is more than willing. There is grace. There is redemption. There is healing, forgiveness. You may have made some mistakes this year. I want you to hear this. You are not a mistake. You may have done some things this year, but you are not a sum total of what you did. That's a lie from the pit of hell from the enemy. Don't you dare believe that lie. To anyone weary, tired, exhausted from trying to control everything and be my own king, there is good news. He came. He landed. So right from where you are, before we sing this last song and close, will you do this for me? All of us. Whether this is super, super hitting you this morning because you're one of those failed kings or you're someone who's like, nope, nope, nope. I've surrendered. I've submitted. He is king. There is total unconditional obedience. And everybody in between, will you just, from right where you are, 
as an act of surrender, an act of worship, act of submission. Say, you are my king. I live for you. You are my king. I surrender all. You are my king. I submit my plans, my agenda, my grandiose desires for 2017 and beyond. I submit it to you. I surrender it to you. Take it, God. Take it, God. Take it, God. Take it, God. If you feel led, put your hand out. Just quietly where you are. Just put your hand out, palms facing up as an act of dependence, act of surrender. Just pull your palms out, right out. Yeah. And picture, imagine this picture in your head. Imagine a subject in front of a king and you're kneeling on one knee with your head bowed. The amazing thing about this king is he's not standing over you. Imagine our God, the king of the universe. Check this out. He's kneeling over you, bowing. He is wrapping his arms around you. You hear me? He's wrapping his arms around you, failed kings. He's wrapping his arms around you. He is kneeling right in front of you. Your head is buried in his chest. His head is buried in your chest. Yeah. Say this, Jesus, you, come on, come on, are my key, come on, Jesus, you are my key, come on, come on, Jesus, you, come on, are my key, come on. Jesus, you are my king. Sing it. Make it your prayer. Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king. Come on, come on. Jesus, you are my king. You see his arms wrapped around you. This king that will return someday and heal all things. In a moment, I'm going to ask all of us to stand as the choir comes back up and close us out in this last song. But before they do, before they do, for the next three weeks as we go through season of Advent, for the next minute or so, I want you to be very specific, very specific about one or two areas in your life where he needs to be king. Areas in which you're tempted to take back control. Areas in which you're afraid of letting go. Areas in which you've given in to cynicism and pessimism. Doubting that God could heal that. God could redeem that. Areas in which you are afraid because you might be disappointed if God doesn't come through. Areas in which you've taken charge only to see it crumble. Specifically think of that one or two area as the Holy Spirit prompts. And I want you to lift that specifically to the Lord and say, be king over this area. Be king over this area. Be king over this area.